Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your Bibles in hand and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're studying verse by verse. We come today to the halfway mark of the book of Ephesians. That is the end of chapter 3. And it is a doxology, verses 20 and 21. Now, doxology literally means an utterance of praise to God. When it's found in the Bible, it's usually in a hymn form or some formula that can be repeated and remembered easily. And so we have a number of doxologies in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 11, we read, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And in Galatians 1.5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 1.17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. We sing in this church what we call the doxology, usually after we take of the Lord's Supper and before going home. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. The Apostle Paul has been listing for three chapters the benefits of being a believer. He's so overcome with gratitude that he has to bow his knee twice in three chapters to pray. And in the middle of uh, this particular prayer, he has to just give the Lord glory. It's right and appropriate every time we pray to spend part of that prayer time in praise. Paul does that. Let's read verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now in chapter 1, Paul gives us the overarching reason why we should praise God. He says, because we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then one by one, he begins to list and to delineate some of those blessings. First of all, he says, we're blessed to have been chosen by God out of all the people on planet earth, of all the people that ever lived to be his disciples. And then he adopted us into his family. We were far away, we were enemies of God, and yet he has chosen to brought us near to make us part of his family. He now calls us sons and daughters. He did that because we are redeemed. We were purchased out of sin slavery by the precious blood of Jesus, and so we're bought with a price. And then he begins to pray that we'd understand the greatness of our salvation and the heavenly inheritance, another benefit of being saved that awaits us. He prays that We'd all have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, that the light bulb would go on in our mind. We'd be enlightened with our eyes to see spiritual things, that we would come to understand the exceeding greatness of the power of God. And then in chapter 2, he gives us um, really, I think, the greatest reason why we should praise the Lord. He says, because we used to be dead and now we're alive. (laughs) He said, you who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive 
by the grace of God. Not only did he quicken us spiritually, make us sensitive to the things of God, he elevates us to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's speaking there of that mystical union that we enjoy with our Savior, the Lord. This prepositional phrase we keep coming across here in Ephesians, we are said to be in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we get to share in the glories of Christ. This is what it means to be seated with Him in the heavenly places. Of course, that was of no doing of our own. He's quick to point out in chapter 2 that we were saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But not only does the Lord give us heaven in our future, He gives us power to live in the here and now. And He gives us a reason for living. In fact, he says that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, and we're created ourselves unto good works. That is, he gives us a reason to live. That is, to bring him glory through our lives. Christians don't do good works in a hope of earning heaven. Christ has already done everything necessary for that, right? We do good works because our home is in heaven. And out of love and gratitude, we express that through our good works. And at the end of chapter 2, he, he describes a mystery. Remember, a mystery is something that has been hidden in the past, but now is being revealed. And the mystery that was revealed through the Apostle Paul's pen and through his lips was the fact that through Jesus' crucifixion, his glorious resurrection, that wall of partition that had separated the races has been torn down. And he is now bringing us all together, making something new, which Paul describes in terms of a building, a dwelling place for God. And he says that Christ himself is the cornerstone of that building, the perfect Savior, the one by whom the church is squared and plumbed and made right. And the foundation of that dwelling place is the teaching of the apostles. And that every one of us, Peter says, is a living stone that's being added person by person, generation after generation, until the coming of the Lord, when that building is completed. Well, then we come to chapter 3, where Paul again wants to pray. And he is, uh, pauses in the middle of that prayer to make some declarations. One of the things that he declares is that he's amazed that God would use him, who he considered the, the least of all Christians, least of all the saints, he said, to be the vehicle, the means through which this mystery would be revealed. But when he finally comes to pray, in verse 14, what was Paul's prayer list? We saw it last week, right? Remember, it, it tended to look a little bit different than most of ours. It was not full of people in the hospital who needed a healing, and it's certainly good and appropriate that we pray for those things. But Paul's prayer list almost always included the spiritual needs of other people. And he prayed very specifically for the church in Ephesus. Number one, he prayed for strength where? In the inner man. Not their physical strength. He prayed for their spiritual strength. So that, he says, Christ could settle down and be at home in their lives. The reason Christ doesn't settle down and is not relaxed and at home and intimate as we want to be with him is because of unconfessed sin. We saw last week is as the Lord has granted access to every area of our life and mind, he sweeps it clean. Then he can relax, he can settle down, and we can have sweet fellowship with him. And then finally, as we saw last week, he prayed that we'd have supernatural comprehension of the love of Christ. We know intellectually, we know on the surface level, 
He certainly must love us. After all, he died for us. But he wants us to have such a thorough grasp of our salvation, such a thorough comprehension of our salvation so that we can understand the love of Christ. And that brings us to the doxology now. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all than we could ask or think. The question is, these certainly are amazing statements. They certainly thrill us to read them, but are they true? Or is this simply a pipe dream? Is God really able to do all these things he is promising to do? Well, you know the answer to that question. God is able, right? Scripture says that all the promises of God are yes and amen. They are true and trustworthy. One of my favorite expressions of the ability of God to save is in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And I want you to turn there, if you will, to Daniel chapter 3. And in Daniel chapter 3, we find the story of these three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember that it was the policy of the Babylonian government that when they would go and occupy new territory, they would cherry pick the best and the brightest of the prisoners of war. They would take these young men and they would be fed in the king's household. They would be educated by the king's tutors. What he was really doing was brainwashing them, keeping their language and culture intact so that he could re-inject them back into this occupied territory to be his emissaries, to be his commissioners, to be his spies. And so three of the best and brightest that he chose were these Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if we know anything about him, he was a man of pride and ego. And his enemies used that against him more than once. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego began to elevate themselves head and shoulders above their contemporaries. And it caused jealousy, as that will do. And so these men who were jealous conspired against them to get rid of them. And they used Nebuchadnezzar's, easy for me to say, ego against him. And so what do they do? They said, now, King, you need to have a statue commissioned to yourself. And he liked the sound of that. And so he built this great marvelous statue. And then he said, now, you need to pass the law, King, that whenever the music plays, everyone in the land has to bow down and worship this statue of you. He said, that sounds good. And so he passed this law. Now, these men knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served Jehovah God. And they also knew that Jehovah God's law was that you have no other gods before me. You're not to bow down to any graven images or make any graven images. And so they thought they had them in a bind. They did. So the music plays. Guess what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow the knee. And so they take them to the king and say, King, these boys will not bow down like the rest of us. What are you going to do about it? And he said, now look, boys, I'm going to give you another chance. Next time the music plays, you bow down. If not, I'm going to have to throw you into the fiery furnace. Here's what happens. Daniel 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's a good answer, isn't it? Is God able? Yes, he is able. In fact, Shadrach says not only is he able, he will deliver us. And I think what he meant by that is ultimate deliverance, right? 
There's a verse in the Bible that says God heals all of our diseases. And I go to the hospitals and I pray with someone who's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I pray that the Lord would heal them. And I pray it in clear conscience because I know if the Lord chooses to do that, he can do it. Amen? I don't have any power to heal cancer. And I don't believe any of you do either, by the way. I believe those, those gifts ceased with the death of the apostles. But I believe God can heal cancer. So we pray, knowing that God is able. After all, it's a very small thing for a God who spoke the word and the world spun into orbit to heal a little bit of cancer, right? But on the other hand, he is going to heal every cancer for believers ultimately, either in this life or the life to come. So we can say our God is able. But even if he doesn't save us immediately, we're not going to worship false gods. We're going to continue to give him praise. Now go back to the context of Ephesians chapter 3. Here is what Paul is praying. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. Now I'll draw your attention now to the outline. The title of the sermon, he is able, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Point number one, heavenly superlatives. Heavenly superlatives. I hope you men this morning use some superlatives when addressing your mother or the wife of, of your youth, the mother of your children. You should have said things like, you are the most beautiful or the wisest or the hardest working or the kindest. Those are superlatives. There are words that mean the top of the line, nothing beyond it. But, but here's what we know generally when we use superlatives to describe one another as people, we're usually exaggerating just a little bit, right? Here's how I know. You go to uh, Walmart or wherever you buy uh, your, your mugs, and uh, here's a mug that says, World's Greatest Boss. And you pick one up, noticing that there's uh, still 23 left in the box, just like it, right? <laughs> You'll get that when you're on your way home. There's irony when we use superlatives to describe each other. We tend to exaggerate. But do you ever think about when we use superlatives to describe God's attributes, we can never exaggerate. In fact, we, we fall short, don't we? So here's Paul, and he's adding superlative to superlative, describing the love and the power that's available to us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, to illustrate this, I thought about a little movie that my kids love to watch, and I do too, honestly, around Christmas. It's called Elf. And the story is about this elf who lives uh, in Santa's workshop in the North Pole. In actuality, he's a 30-year-old man who's six foot three. But he was raised as an elf, and he thinks he's an elf. And uh, when he's 30, they finally tell him, no, you're a man, and your father lives in New York City. And he's so desperate to know his dad that he walks from the North Pole to New York City. And when he arrives in Manhattan, he comes to a little shop, a little coffee shop, cafe, and above the door it says, world's greatest cup of coffee. And he's been living in isolation up in the North Pole. He doesn't understand flattery. He doesn't understand irony. He doesn't understand sarcasm. In fact, that's what's so endearing about this character. He's so pure. And he sees the sign that says, world's greatest cup of coffee. He opens the door. He goes to the owner and says, congratulations, you did it. World's greatest cup of coffee. And he turned around and walked out. We use superlatives to exaggerate to make a point. God uses superlatives about himself to state a fact. And so here's the superlatives that, that God says about himself through Paul's pen. Look at verse 20. He says, now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think. On my little outline here in front of me, I have drawn a little pyramid, a triangle, with the point at the top. You might want to do that on your notes. And I've drawn equidistant apart, three or four lines across that pyramid. And this is how this sentence is constructed. It just falls right off the tree into your lap. Now, what is the basic sentence here? Subject and predicate. He is, right? Does that sound theologically? God exists? Sure. There have been lots of uh, thick theological books written on this. In fact, the, the, the scripture says that the essence of wisdom is the recognition that God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently search for him, right? So God is. But then he begins to add some words to that. He says, he is what? Able. Would you agree with that? Is God able? Well, he certainly is. He's God after all. The word we use in theological circles, he's omnipotent, right? He can do whatever he chooses to do. Now here's where it gets interesting. Paul begins to add these superlatives I mentioned earlier. He is able to do, now the next line, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I put those two words together because it's one Greek word, means super able. He is super able to do, but he doesn't stop there. So he says, he is, he is able, he is able to do, he is able to do super abundantly, and then he adds another, above. <laughs> What's above super abundantly? Well, I don't know, but Paul seems to think there's somewhere out there. He is able to do super abundantly above all we could ask. Now think about it. There is nothing you can ask of the Lord in earnest that he is unable to do. Doesn't that give you confidence in your prayer life? When you come to ask the Lord, you men that are out of work, don't you think he's able to find you a job? You, you folks that uh, have trouble with your children, is he able to bring reconciliation to your home? Sure he is. He is able to do that. Not only that, he says he's able to do super abundantly above all you could ask. And what's the last phrase? Or even think. Isn't that amazing? In other words, when we come to the end of our words, when we run out of dictionary, when we run out of vocabulary, he doesn't run out of strength. He doesn't run out of power. There's more beyond that. Now, you put the whole thing together. He, God, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think. <laughs> and we can say amen and go home right there, right? And that, that would be the truth. We're not, by the way, but we could. <laughs> now we go on. Let, let's look at, at the next point he makes here, and that is his indwelling power. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, comma, according to the power that works within us. Now there are some who look at this and they think, well, that sounds kind of like Eastern mysticism. He's going to work according to the power that's within us. After all, isn't that what New Age philosophy is based upon? That we're all born with this innate, inherent little bit of God within us. If we can just tap into it, somehow we could do great things. We could, you know, move mountains. We could excel in business. We could bend spoons with our mind. All these things that people want to do. That's not at all what he's saying here. When he says he wants to do in accordance to the power that dwells within us, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's power. You know that at the moment of conversion, we are given as a gift the indwelling 
presence of the Holy Spirit, who is God, the third person, and what are the limitations of the power and the strength of God? There are none. They are limitless. He is infinite in power. And so he says he wants to grant us according to that power. Remember we saw last week the difference between according to and out of? God wants to give to you according to the power of, of the Holy Spirit. But then we come to the third point, which is really the essence of the message today. We speak of his eternal glory when we praise him. He says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen. You ever wonder, what, what is the definition of God's glory? It's really hard to define. Usually, in our humanness, we want to attach it to some visible manifestation. That's understandable, but it's more than that. For example, in the Old Testament, God, when he was leading the Hebrew children out of slavery through the wilderness, he would appear as a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, or a burning bush. And we call that his glory, right? The glory of the Lord appeared to Moses, and that's right. In the New Testament, we see that uh, when Paul is on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus and the risen Lord Jesus shows up in his glory, blinds Paul. So we, we think of some bright light. It is that. This is what John Piper says about God's glory. He says, the glory of God is the beauty and brightness of his infinite perfections. When your heart breaks out in the words, glory to God, it's like a football team carrying their coach off the field on their shoulders, or like a standing ovation at an orchestra hall, or like the waving and cheers of the crowds on the docks as the battleship comes home after victory, end quote. It's when we truly celebrate who God is and what he's done. We express to him his glory. But don't you find this kind of awkward to do? Look around you when we're singing praises to God. There, there are some people who just, they're like they're the only person there, right? Just them and God, and they're giving glory to Him. But, but some of us find it a little more difficult because, after all, Moses can see and talk with the burning bush, right? And, and they saw that pillar of fire, but, but we don't have that visible manifestation. So we sometimes find it, find it awkward to give God the glory and praise He deserves. But we shouldn't. After all, we don't find it awkward in other situations to praise that which is praiseworthy. If you don't believe that, go tomorrow night when the Rangers get back into town to play the White Sox. Let's say it's 2-2 two to two in the seventh inning and Adrian Beltre comes up with the bases loaded and he hits a home run to dead center field. You're going to see a spontaneous praise meeting. People are going to say in a variety of languages, praise the Adrian for hitting that home run. I'm going to be right there with them. Because I enjoy it when he hits a home run. But you know what? On the bigger continuum, on the, the, the totem pole of real important things in the world, sports is somewhere near the bottom compared to the glory that God deserves. And so we ought, as Paul says, to give praise not to someone who once every 80 at bats can hit a home run, we ought to give praise to the one who gave us life. We ought to give praise to the one who saved our soul. We ought to give praise and glory to the one who has prepared a heavenly inheritance that awaits us all. Do you know what? Um, what a tragedy. Because the Bible says 
We have not. Why not? Because we ask not. What a a tragedy that there are, are millions of Christians, maybe some in this room, who are living their life with their ticket bought to heaven and they're just waiting to die. And they don't understand that that power that is available for them to live obedient, victorious lives for the glory of God is indwelling them if they will simply give the Lord his glory. And so we we should pray great prayers. We should attempt, as the missionary said, great things for God because he has said, and he does not lie, that he is able to do everything we ask. Not only that, he said, I can do above everything you ask. In fact, he said, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask. And he didn't stop there. He said he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. I've been thinking several weeks about these verses and how it relates to our church as we are beginning the initial processes of some long-term planning here. As you know, we're dangerously close to being debt-free, and we want to ask the Lord's help. Now what? What's the next step in the life of our church? And we've been praying earnestly, meeting with deacons, meeting with staff members, and I've just been convicted in my heart that, Sanders, you haven't been praying big enough prayers. You haven't been thinking big enough thoughts Because I know intellectually, I'm like Shadrach, if the Lord wants to save me from the fiery furnace, he can. But I'm thinking, he probably won't. But I guess he could, (laughs) if he really wanted to. But what if we believe not only can he do that, but he wants to do that, right? See, God is not some distant deity who is, is dangling theological frisbees just out of our reach, driving us crazy. He calls us his, our father, right? He calls us his children. Jesus calls us his friends. He's given us all these wonderful um, benefits. We are in Christ. We have access to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us into his family. He, he's in a disposition that he wants to to answer our prayers. But we have not because we ask not. And sometimes we ask things that are... Truth is, those things could happen and we would not be sure if it was God or us, right? They're so small. And so what I'm asking you to do as we start this process is to pray that God would do something in and through this church. I don't know what it's going to be that is inexplicable other than he did it, right? So that we're very sure that he gets the credit for it. Now the question is, if we ask for something like that, is he able? You know the answer to that, right? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we in this room could ever ask or even think. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus how long? Have you ever been at an event, a concert maybe, and you like it, it's okay, but uh, when it's over, everyone stands to their feet and starts giving a standing ovation. And, you, and you're, you do that. You don't want to be the only guy not standing. So you stand, 
And after a couple of minutes, you think, well, that's probably about enough. And yet everybody keeps standing, keeps going, and you don't want to be the first one to sit down. And finally, which seems like forever, people stop and sit down. Now, here's the question. When we're praising God, how long is it going to be long enough? How long is the praise? How long is it appropriate for the praise to go on? He answers the question here. To him be glory through the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Forever and ever. When we all get to heaven, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be praising and giving glory to God. Now, what's the means that he wants that to happen? The church. He says the church is the primary means through which God's glory is displayed to a lost and dying world. Why does God do whatever he does for his glory? And here's what he's decided to do. is to put together a building, a dwelling place for himself from people, Jews, Gentiles, black, white, educated, uneducated, young and old, to a church so he can display his glory forever and ever. And you and I get to be a part of that. That's good stuff. Let's thank the Lord for that truth. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that uh, we could praise you all day long. We'd never stretch the truth. We'd never exaggerate. And we'd run out of words long before it was appropriate. So, Father, we join Paul's praise to you, this doxology that describes your glory and worth. And we know ultimately, Lord, that the church is your people. And wherever your people go this week, we pray that uh, they would display your power and glory. We pray in doing so that uh, the Holy Spirit would draw some to saving faith. We pray that others would become true worshipers. Father, I, I pray for our church as we begin this process of planning for the future that, that we would pray for big things. And you'd give us great dreams, Lord, not so that we could be glorified, but because you're able to answer those prayers. Father, we pray that you would for your own name's sake. Father, I would pray if there's any person in the sound of my voice here today who all of these things sound very strange because they don't know you as we know you. Father, would you open blind eyes today? Would you awaken dead souls? Would you draw sinners to yourself today? Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and how encouraging they are to me even by their presence here today. I pray you'd send us off today out into the world more zealous than when we enter to bring glory to Jesus through our lives. And when that happens, we'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.